All right, you were just watching those television show theme songs from, you know, decades back, and you used the word possibility. Mm -hmm. There was so much possibility. Talk more about what you mean by that, as, especially as you go back to the Mary Tyler Moore theme song and, and that stuff. What, what brought up the, the idea of so much possibility? The, the overall feeling of uh, the way that television shows were being put together and just put anything out there and try it. Just Let's mm. just fill up programming. Sure. Um, the, the bands were doing experimental sort of things. You know, they, they were all coked up and, you know, ready to go and perform. Um, right in the late 70s, early 80s, you had FM. So this whole new spectrum of sound. Oh, FM was, radio. Wow. Yes. I don't even have a way of thinking before yeah. FM. <laughs> a, AM radio, you know, where you hear like, you know, now it's religious and, and sure. you know, um, uh, Art Bell and stuff like that. Maybe I'll, yeah. I would think of it as weather maybe or. Sure. You know. So when FM came out, you've got stereo, you've got all this higher fidelity. Uh -huh. And so there's just this explosion of sound and, you know, tele color television. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I mean, this is, it just seemed like, Everything was wide open. As, and that's different than today. How? It seems crowded now. <laughs> it is crowded out there, but some of us are up here um, at the top, especially in the, especially in the podcast game. Uh, anyway, we're talking about these old theme songs and uh, theme shows. We were looking at that stuff because uh, we're getting a downbeat today from the late Ed Asner. How about you, uh Teach us youngsters about Ed Asner. Well, Carl Fredrickson from Up is probably his most recognizable role for this generation. I mean, had so, us crying, and we ain't been in right. the theater but for five minutes. Right. Um, <laughs> if you want to go back a little bit further, he was Santa Claus and Elf. Um, with the um, with what's the name? Yeah. With the comic. And what's her name? Yep. With yep. the, but but you know, with uh, uh he was on Will the Ferrell. Off, Will Ferrell. You know yeah. you know who I'm talking about the whole time. I, I do. And. Anyway, he was on there. <laughs> yep. Oh, he sure was. He Santa, was Santa Claus, Claus up. Oh, right. wow. I, I remember that. Um, and then really Bob a... Newhart was the head elf or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that movie was shouting all y'all out. Anyway, it was Ed a, Asner. a really long career that he had. You know, he did some voice work in the Boondocks. Mm -hmm. uh, he was Lou Grant in the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which was set in Minneapolis uh, about a young, unmarried, no children, independent woman gonna make it after all mm -hmm. that's even in the theme song you got us you got to have an insult in there a sideways insult too sure. you're gonna make it after all <laughs> uh then he went on to do lou grant after that uh stopped he was the only actor to play the same role in both a comedy and a drama yeah and i grew up with him on the television he just seemed to be that you know he played that character of the gruff but lovable uncle yeah. You know, that sort of vibe. But if you knew him behind the scenes, he was also an activist. He was very active in SAG-AFTRA. Um, he donated a lot of money to up-and-coming filmmakers. Um, just, you know, he was playing a bit of being this gruff, coarse exterior guy when really he was just a big sweetheart. And, you know, obviously a, a huge loss to the world. So uh, you did mention that uh, Ed Asner had been in the boondocks. So mm -hmm. I just thought we would, uh, again, get a downbeat from there. We're just going to listen to a little bit of this. Uh, the, the character that he plays is Edward Wunsler. And I looked all over the boondocks catalog. And I, and I think this is a, a good one to look back to. So let's take a quick listen here. These are hard times. Americans need inspiration. People want real life to be like in the movies, with good guys and bad guys and black guys, all that shit. 
This country needed a rallying cry, a reminder of why it's great to be an American. So, you just make this stuff up? No! Several overpaid members of the Writers' Fucking Guild of America make this stuff up. Yeah. This is just a joke to you. We're talking about the lives of innocent Americans. Innocent American. Singular. Daniel Stuckey, a.k.a. Dan the Security Man. Have you ever met Dan Stuckey, Jack? So that that little skit, that, that little excerpt from the boondocks is in a different context for me now because you talked about his activism with SAG-AFTRA and all mm -hmm. this stuff, so it sounds like a little bit of shade in there. But <laughs> uh, 100%. 100%. But, but even out of that context, I think there's something to be said. We're going through a lot, and and people want a hero, maybe even you know someone to blame. But mm -hmm. I think that's, that's interesting there, and especially for him to bring that idea and all of his career, all of his legacy on to that show. Um, this so what I instantly thought of: How long before we get the Afghanistan film? Based based on what he's saying, you know, we, we people want to see the hero. It's not about the safety of us all. It's about the safety of one who, in the twenty first century, I think it's safe to say can embody, you know, that American, the you know Americanness. Or I, I, I kind of hear that in what he's saying. I bet you think that, of that. I bet you that movie's being written right now if it isn't finished. Mm, mm, mm. How do you how do you feel about that? Because I don't think we've gotten. Is there a Vietnam film? Maybe I haven't watched it or 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 anything. I mean, Forrest Gump and 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 other things. But well, sure. You I'm, didn't see Full Metal Jacket. Uh uh. Okay. So all right, I, I need to go back and watch my films. But Apocalypse Now, man, I'll watch that. Okay. One with you. Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll we'll get to it. I'm I'm ignorant here, but that that definitely made me um, think of that. The other thing that <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you know, we have um, Ed Asner in the studio with the Boondocks people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> he to a degree stuck his neck out to be there or had to have a level of comfort or affirmation of himself. I wonder uh, what would you ask him about that experience being in, you know, the midst of true hotepery, uh, true um, uh, uh, cooning as, you know, as portrayed by the neighbor, I'm forgetting uh, his name right now, but just being around all of this deep blackness, <laughs> Well, he well, would have been he would have been in his <laughs> mid to late eighties when he did that. Sure. So he was probably past the give a damn point, <laughs> right? Uh, Come sure. on. Now, when you get to a certain age, you'll you'll go and talk to anybody. Yeah. You know, or, or you speak your mind. You know, if your pants are on too high and you you know it's hot out, you'll just belt out. You know, my teeth itch. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. I, and yeah. so I think also there's a reason that they went after Ed for that role, mm -hmm. for that sound. So he probably, his reputation probably preceded him yeah. for the boondocks. They knew who they were getting. Yeah, I think that's really a mark of someone who uh, really had a consequential and important career, not only someone who uh, entertained the white folks for decades, but someone who even found the opportunity and accepted the opportunity to get deep black mm -hmm. and to have a reason mm -hmm. for me to, you know, think about his legacy. So yeah. uh, rest in peace, rest in power to um, the late Ed Asner. Let's get started. Bye. Uh -huh. 
Robert McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. The theme goes. Every, every I know I say it every other week, but I sit here and Bob as we're listening <laughs> to it. You you composed one. You, oh, you, you you got one out when we did that. Hello everyone and welcome to Opus 114. Welcome to, I'm, I'm out of my mind, welcome to Opus 114 of the Triloquy Podcast. That's what I was going to say. This is Triloquy. Uh, welcome. <laughs> to the other returning listeners, thank you for um, for keeping, as, as I've been saying, keeping this boat afloat and really supporting this project of ours. We really appreciate it and couldn't do it without you. To the new listeners or to the semi-new listeners, thank you so much for joining. This is a podcast that takes the phrase and the concept and the idea of classical music and contextualizes it in a different way. We take new we take stories from the world and uh, apply it to the canon as we see it, not just uh, the Western Europe, uh, European uh, assortment of it, but uh, the global assortment of it. So thank you so much for checking us out. You can find more information on our website, Triloquy.org. You can also contribute and listen to past opuses there at Triloquy.org. Support for Triloquy, in addition to coming from the listeners, coming from you, um, is made possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds people who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. You can learn more about the Shuttleworth Foundation at shuttleworthfoundation.org. I would also like to send a huge thank you to Dr. Antonio Kyler from FSU for getting Triloquy a couple of interns. That's that's exciting. So I think finally uh, maybe the Instagram page is going to get some movement off. I've been doing okay, doing my best on the Twitter. But I, listen, I thought for sure, <laughs> I thought for sure that you would be saying, "Would you make me another wine?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's virtual. Otherwise, no, I, I wouldn't do that. So, uh, shout out to Dylan and shout out to Jenna. We'll even have to maybe get them in on the show at some point and, oh, we have and see what they think about all this nonsense we're doing. Yeah, um, yeah, that's all of my announcements. So let's go ahead and move into movement one. So I had actually planned to start the first movement by uh, giving a shout out to Kalina Bovell, but you had actually planned uh, to do the same. So we can uh, give her a give her a double sharp. That's there. right. How about you? Uh, how about you uh, talk to us about what Kalina has been doing? Last week on Tuesday, she made her debut at the BBC Prom. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's a it huge is. deal. Man, playing uh, the Avery Hall. Yeah. Oh, the Royal, no, not the Avery Hall, the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, yeah. And you have to say the the in front of it, evidently. <laughs> Just like Ohio State. The, Is it the Ohio State? <laughs> the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, uh, for folks who don't know, uh, Kalina Bavell is... Um, part of the Triloquy family, first and foremost, uh, uh, featured in season one and uh, also for the replay during the break between season two and season three, uh, a favorite. She's the assistant conductor at the Memphis Symphony Orchestra, um, a black uh, Latina who is changing the game down there. Always proud to think about her in my hometown. And she's made her way all the way over to Europe. Right. So she was uh, she made her debut and the program included um she did uh you you need to help me with this orchestra again because i always mispronounce yeah, it chinicky chinicky okay thank you with an exclamation point and you met the founder chi chi at mm -hmm. sphinx you, I, know. I know you met a lot of people but yeah yep and so i'm shout old, out to so my memories and all that great <laughs> but on the program she had uh, florence price's piano concerto in one movement the the whole second half was samuel coleridge taylor's symphony in a minor mm -hmm. uh fela Shawande's uh 
African Suite and Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, the Overture by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And um, not only did she say it went great, so congratulations to her, but uh, I found a little bit of synergy in an article that came across from uh, the New York Times one day after she made her debut. And the title of it is... When Europe Offered Black Composers an Ear. So basically the story just uh, talks about how musically um, audiences were more or seemed to be more accepting and have a bit more of a thirst for music by black composers than they did here in the United States. I'm, 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 I have to give that title just a, a little flat. I know. I know. <laughs> like when but, like when they bothered to, you know, care mm-hmm. about what we Negroes think about classical right. music so, anyway. But they, uh, they, they frame it around the story of an Afro-Caribbean conductor named Rudolf Dunbar, who mm. uh, he did really well in Germany in front of a German audience. He got all these doors open. You know, he was uh, uh, going around... Um, the UK, yeah, and Dunbar also did some work in uh, social justice, racial justice, and he believed that activism and classical music could not be separated. That mm-hmm. you know that was going to be something for him brought together. So it starts painting this picture of you know a magnanimous crowd over in Europe, right? Yeah. And they even highlight the Chiniki Orchestra as a group of mainly uh, musicians of color playing together. Uh, so they point out that, you know, that's a, an English-based group that's doing the work now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they bring up Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and I was listening to uh, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast a couple times over the last week, and I wanted to, I, I wanted to get your idea on uh, Samuel's father left before he left England for uh, back to Sierra Leone mm-hmm. before he even knew that the mother was pregnant. Sure, right? And he left. Legend has it he left because well, that's right. But he left because you know he he studied in London and got his medical degree and he was practicing and took over this small practice and uh, had financial uh, hardships due to the fact that. People didn't want to go and be served by a black doctor unless they were being overseen by a white one. Right. Okay. So what do you see in that dichotomy, that mixture of they'll watch a black conductor play black music? Go on. Keep going. Am I out of, am I out of line? No, keep going. Keep going. But they don't want to be seen by... A black doctor. Help, help me, help me. I, I kind of, I kind of get where you're going, but but help me make the connection. You you're, got you're this getting, thing, a, you got this you're getting a finger here. You're getting a, con, you're uh, drawing a connection between folks not trusting a black doctor and what they'll watch you. They'll watch you do the music, right? But I don't want you touching me in the doctor's office. Uh, <laughs> That's all. That's the that's the history of black folks in white ecosystems. You know what? What I think is a a more. You know, first of all, that's a very interesting thing to point out. What I think is a more obvious uh, version of what you're saying, and just to make sure that I understand, it's like down south when you go to an Ole Miss football game, they'll cheer for you until the, until the game is done. 
but they don't want to they don't want to see you in the parking lot as a matter of fact they might call the police on you well you know this is this is sort of the thing that i'm getting at and so i'm wondering how then is it really any better was it really any better there for them then no no absolutely not i uh i, I used to you know spend a lot of time on that app clubhouse that we've uh, we talked about a little bit and early in the morning you know when i get up and i, I would get on the clubhouse it's nighttime uh, over there in, in England. So right. I'm getting in, in all of the activism rooms and all of the Black Lives Matter rooms based in London. And the stories that they tell, they talk about how it's worse over there, but we don't see it because England has more of a uh, of a, a system of covering uh, and, uh, and a system mm. of oppression. You know, mm. they're, the, they're, they're the originators of it all, after all. So mm. they're, uh, I, I think that, I don't forgot the question you're asking. Um, was it really any better then? Oh, I'm no, I'm I'm sure it it, it wasn't, and uh, I I think a lot about uh, proximity to whiteness for black people. So being able to play this white orchestral music, you know, was uh, you know proof enough to them that I guess uh, black people had some intelligence or were worth something, and that was something that they could enjoy. There was no physical risk there for them to sit there and listen to that music. But when you're talking about my health, no, they're going to make sure that there's a, a white overseer. I would imagine it would be very similar with finances. A lot of those people wouldn't have had a, a black bookkeeper without somebody looking over his shoulder or uh, whatever. So, you know, the I racism do, is real. I do realize that there was a span of uh, several decades between mm -hmm. Samuel Coleridge Taylor's birth yeah. and when Mr. Dunbar was over leading orchestras. Right. I'm, I'm sure, and, and I don't know if, if that much of a shift could happen yeah. in you know, two or three decades. So let's bring this back to music. So uh, Dunbar, uh, you know, facing all of these challenges, uh, obviously, well, I don't know, obviously, because I haven't been to the doctor over in England, but I would imagine that they don't have the white overseers <laughs> in the room anymore. Um, but yeah, a lot th th there's a lot more progress that needs to happen and 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 these stories that you're describing aren't that long off so having Kalina and the Chiniki Orchestra you know at the Royal Albert Hall I suppose is a uh, is some bit of progress but you know again you're getting me into my my wannabe hotep bag again we're we're approximating whiteness right like we're we're proving ourselves based on our ability to do uh, traditionally white things. And yes, this music is by black folks, but Fela Sawandi spent many of his years in London learning. And I think even after that, he spent uh, the rest of his life for a large portion of his life over in uh, in, in Canada. So if there are two sides to the coin. You know, we celebrate the Chiniki Orchestra. We celebrate Kalina. But if, if you're going to bring up uh, you know, those sorts of stories, I can't help but to, you know, think about what is the next step. Okay, we've made it to the proms, playing the Western orchestral music, what comes next? You know, what when 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 are our stories based on our historical perspectives going to be centered there? I think that's even the next step. So not that we haven't made any progress, but the journey is not done. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Well, maybe it's not far off. If you go back to 2008, 2009, there was uh, a series called The Proms After Dark, which was, you know, clubs and non-traditional spaces. And they would do orchestral performances with a DJ. Uh, 
It was a white DJ. The white DJ isn't my problem. My problem is the marginalization of that aesthetic. You know what to be after dark? To, or? Right. We we always talk about like the the specialty shows or the or the the other things. You know that that are the uh, peripheral that are the accessory to the main. You know traditional thing. So yes, okay, great. Problems after dark. That's that's phenomenal. We need to bring it to the light. Amen. Amen. We're gonna talk about some church music later, anyway. Mm. <laughs> but okay. I mean, but but do you see what I'm what I'm saying? Oh there? no, no, you, know? you don't. You don't have any convincing there for me. I'm I'm just. So to so to that to have Kalina and Chinicky up there not during Black I think their Black History Month is October actually but like to not have them during Black History Month or Martin Luther King to have them on that main stage because this music deserves that platform it is important I want to make sure I'm speaking clearly I'm not saying that that is not important and a huge thing oh I don't and, think I don't think anybody thinks and that. you know what's the next step let's get the what what you described the proms after dark. On, on the regular stage and, and streamed like everything else does. So there's all, look, there's always a little dust in the corners, like my teacher used to say. Shout out to Judy. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up before we leave this accidental, you know, I searched the internet to make sure everybody was putting some respect on Kalina's name, okay? Yes. I just, I could not wait to find somebody trying to shade her because I was going to get them together on this platform. <laughs> I did. <laughs> This is triloquy. We have it to bring is. it to the people. So I didn't find it because Kalina is incredible. And obviously no one would uh, say anything about her technique and anything, and whatever she's doing. But I did find something that I wanted to read here. Oh, uh, no. This is from um, sg.news.yahoo.com. So I don't know if that's a, a specific uh, regional thing. Uh, this is an article by Barry Millington. It says, Chiniki, Kalina Bovell, and Geneva Kane Mason Proms Review. Minor revelations I'd gladly hear again. Okay, so I, I'm just going to read this much from it. This is uh, in the middle of it. It says, the Nigerian-born Fela Sawandi established himself in England in the 30s where he was an organist in Holborn and jammed with Fats Waller. His African suite of 1944 betrays no enthusiasm for modernists such as Britton or Stravinsky, recalling rather the nostalgic vein of Dvorak. We, we, uh, you talked about the overseers, right? Mm. So Dvorak for this writer is the overseer of, 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 of Fela Sawandi. Okay. Let me continue just a little bit here. Um, it says, I saw more than one silver head bobbing appreciatively <laughs> to the that's, music. You see, Phelous and Wandy got him in there bobbing their head. Yeah. yeah. Uh, paints a picture, doesn't it? He said, though, again, it's not a profound score, but it's an accomplished and enjoyable one. You know, there, there's always just these backhanded things. You talked about uh, you're going to make it after all, you know. Yeah. They get they get on my nerves. Mm. So Barry Millington... Um, I have more important things to talk about in the triloquy today, so you're lucky. But let, let's let's go through this with a fine tooth comb, people, as we're uh, seeing more black folks on more of these stages uh, at these predominantly white institutions. Do not let the shade get by you, <laughs> because the shade is definitely there. Anyway, uh, shout out to uh, Kalina Bovell again. A huge congratulations and a huge congrats to everyone over there at Chinnakee. I hope to make it over there or be. Um, Invite it to play sometime. That would be great. But uh, <laughs> but in the meantime, we're going to uh, transition out of this first accidental, this first sharp uh, with a piece of music that was performed at the proms. And one of the reviews uh, that I uh, read, uh, the reviewer said that the way uh, Kalina um, 
conducted uh, the uh, one movement from the African suite, the Onipe movement, that's named after a village uh, in Nigeria. Uh, they uh, especially liked the colors that Kalina pulled out of there. So obviously we don't um, have that recording. Uh, this is the CBC Vancouver Orchestra playing this, but we're going to listen to a little bit of that Onipe to get us into our next accidental. That's what's hard to conduct. We can all flail our arms fast and crazy and get in the orchestra to really sound juiced up and loud, but you have to have some delicate technique to really to get that sound exactly the way you want it to sound, the way that the composer suggested that it sounds so. You know, again, shout out to Kalina. It sounds like she nailed it. I, uh, the CD that that uh, comes from, I actually brought that uh, a couple years ago. I think like weeks before uh, Opus One of Triloquy, I was on the Need to Know podcast, a hip hop podcast over uh, in New York. Shout out to the Need to Know people, and uh, you know, I brought everyone a CD and and um, sure, sure, and uh, and Alex, you know, his uh, on the Need to Know podcast, his uh, folks are from Nigeria, so I brought him some of that uh, music by Fela Sawandi, and he knew who Fela Sawandi was, so mm. um, a, a, a name that uh, is uh, very important and celebrated, not only you know in the mother on the motherland, but over there in England. Um, for years in Canada and finally here in the United States. So it's really exciting to see more names popping up. I hope the name Fela Sawandi becomes as familiar as Florence Price and William Grant still. We got a little bit of work before we get there, but uh, we'll we'll definitely get there. So uh, that's some gr really great news. I wanted to bring in one quick sharp. I don't want to talk about it for a long time, but Scott, mm. the Met is bike. <laughs> is it the Metropolitan Opera is bike? Let me uh, read here from the New York Times. Uh, name of this article: Met Opera reaches deal with orchestra paving way for reopening. Uh, it says here the Metropolitan Opera has struck a labor deal with its orchestra. Officials announced Tuesday paving the way for its musicians to return to work and for the company, the largest performing arts organization in the nation, to resume performances next month after being shut down for more than a year by the pandemic. New and York, the opening show is? The opening show is a work um, by Terrence Blanchard. Oh, okay. Um, I'll, okay. I'll talk about that uh, in a second. But uh, what I did want to bring up, you know, New York got hit really hard, especially back when COVID was scary, yeah. you know, back when people wore their masks and things. Um, but we also reported, you know, here on Triloquy, how much these musicians were making. So a lot of them were retiring and, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, can't go long without that paycheck. Uh, I, I get that. I'm, I'm not trying to minimize that. But I also have to say that, you know, uh, many of these folks were among the more privileged people in the arts and across the board to have lost their jobs or have uh, to have been, you know, without some checks. Most of all, <laughs> Peter Gelb, out of everybody, he's quoted in this article. He says, uh, the members of the Met's great orchestra have been through Herculean challenges during the 16th months of the shutdown as we struggled to keep the company intact. He uh, went on to say, now we look forward to rebuilding and returning to action. Now, let me let me make myself clear. I know it was a rough time. 
for a lot of those musicians, despite the six figure salary that they were making before. Okay. How would Peter Gelb and his multiple millions and his penthouse apartment know what the musicians were going through? That's wasn't, my thing. Wasn't that paid for that apartment? you're telling me something and that that makes it even worse if so that doesn't sound ridiculous that sounds like no something i thought that, it was in the story that you sure shared, but go sure ahead, sure yeah so i mean that's my thing we we uh we get you know uh, labor unions and orchestra committees you know going through all this hard work um you know negotiating and, and x y and z they finally get somewhere and peter gelb walks out to say oh it's been such a hard time but we're so glad to get back into action it really makes me think about this top-down structure that so many of these arts institutions have that has to go and let's take it away from arts institutions amazon you mm. know how how would how would people feel if jeff bezos got on tv talking about oh it's been such a hard time for our workers but we're ready like how how would he know how would he you know didn't he say something similar like hey thanks so to all my employees and everybody who shops at amazon because you made this possible i can't you put me in space i can't that was his that was his <laughs> quote i cannot uh, as as I have new uh, <laughs> as I have new uh, frames for my glasses coming in through Amazon, you see he's he set it up to where you know we have to just mm -hmm. like just like capitalism anyway. L let me not chase a rabbit off the trail. I just wanted to name that and speak to that part of the article again. Always a little dust in the corners. Let's look at the people who want to walk out when everything is solved or, or or things are better and say, oh, things were so hard, but we're ready to get back to it. It would have been worse. If they would have came back with like Turandot, you know, number one. <laughs> sure. I mean, well, I mean, I think uh, aside from what they're opening with, here folks are still upset at Peter Gelb. So right. he he needs to he needs to watch what he says and not try to uh, claim some proximity to the folks who were actually on the ground and 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 doing what they had to do. Um, but you know, we, we you're 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 bringing up what they're coming back with. So uh, the first opera that the Met is going to present. Um, is Fire Shut Up In My Bones, uh, like a, a jazz-inspired opera by Terrence Blanchard. And if you don't know who Terrence Blanchard is, he's been a black composer who's been all over the um, all over the field writing music. I think he did the score to Black Klansman. I, I think I mm. talk about... I know, used to I used to play his albums when I was a, a jazz host back in the... So he's been he's been out here. For, for, yeah. Yep. And, you know, of course, Scott, we talk about firsts and, and how that doesn't need to be the story. But Terrence Blanchard is the very first black composer to have an opera at the Met. And the, and the Met is over 100, over 100 years old. So mm -hmm. in the spirit of equity, that means we need to do what for the next seven? I mean, for the next hundred years, we need to do what? No, you don't have an opinion. <laughs> no. Is that what it is? Go ahead. I'm not going to press the save button. Go ahead. <laughs> Repeat the question for me. In the spirit of equity, if this is the first time we're getting a black opera, that means it needs to be a lot more black operas and a lot more regularly, maybe even every opera. Oh, I'm sorry. I got lost. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't sleep a lot last night. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's but, all good. Yeah, yeah. No, but, no, but, I see what you're saying. But when we talk about that word equity and, and right. the spirit of equity. No, because my elevator pitch was, what, 400 years of black music. Yeah. And 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 of other things as well. Right. But it's a, it, it depends, I'm joking. It depends on, on what floor we're going to as to whether or not I get there. Um, Will Liverman is going to be uh, in Fire Shut Up In My Bones, uh, another member of the Triloquy family. So um, shout out to him. And look, the last thing I'll say is that 
again, we are not done. What we talked about, um, the proms, you know, what we can do to go a little bit further. The work is not done here at the Met either. We're going to have this black or uh, this black opera on stage. If the orc, if the audience is all white, there's still lots of work to be done. And not even just for the sake of diversity, but think about the city of New York. I know you say you've never been there, but it's one of the, it's the world in a city. So mm -hmm. if everybody there is white, I mean, that means you aren't actually serving New York City. And I feel like that's a, a fairly easy concept to understand and wrap your mind around. So as we continue to um, put these black um, operas on stage, I don't know if this is the, if this is the only one, I'm gonna have to come back <laughs> next week and uh -huh. say something something yeah. else i don't i don't have that fact but as we continue to uh, diversify what we put on stage we have to put even more intentionality behind who is in the audience because if it's one thing that i am not going to sit here and uh, and see the arts turn into is white folks being entertained by black folks and that's just the the end of the discussion that that can't be where we end up that that would be a a, a repeat of you know the 20s and the 30s going all the way back to uh josephine baker days and and all that and this article from the new york times talking about how british audiences and german audiences were more open to black performers and music then oh i can't i can't yeah. um the orchestra is What a, did I give that? Did I give that a flatrel? Was that a Is that what we did? You want a, a flatrel? There you go. Flatrel for you there. Um now the orchestra, the Met Opera Orchestra is coming back in its own, you know, little concert. I think they're uh, I think it said they're playing Mahler 2 and they're also uh going to do um, a little bit of, or I think the entire uh, Requiem of uh, Verdi, uh, mm. Giuseppe Verdi's Requiem, because uh, it's also the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 over there. So yep. the Requiem, uh, they feel is a, a great way to do that. So we're going to hear a little bit of Verdi's Requiem, but I mean, we, we gotta, we gotta hear the part everybody wants to hear. Let's okay. go, let's, let's go ahead and jump into it. Has that one come around a lot for you in your radio programming? I'm sure that's not something that somebody wants to <laughs> hear, at, you know, at, at I don't know, 1, 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. Or, or whatever. But yeah. <laughs> not much. But, but one of those uh, uh, one of the more famous excerpts from the Western classical repertoire inside of this piece that is supposed to um, talk about, you know, a requiem talking about those who have, who have gone and, you know, all of those tender moments, but it has that in there. Of, of course, I remember it from uh, Django, Django and they used a really great recording too. I'm gonna have to uh, go see who that was. Yeah. The one we just heard was uh, the KPM Philharmonic Orchestra. And I, 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 I Thought it, it might have been an orchestra in uh, South Korea or something, but this is actually an orchestra in London, and it's the orchestra that records at um, Abbey Road Studios, the famous oh, yeah. Abbey Road. So yeah. all sorts of people getting paid to play um, music over there in England, and they didn't have to, you know, go through all this stuff that the Met musicians went through. But we're talking about a different system, you know, publicly funded arts orchestra members that mm. are mm -hmm. state employees, and you know, there, there's some. There can be some fear, some hesitation there as well. But anyway, um, so <laughs> the the last 
um, accidental in this first movement. I want to give it a sharp, but I'm going to give it a natural because it's naturally a part of capitalism and we have yet to see what you know what this does or what the broader opinion is i'm reading here from the verge.com it says apple buys classical music streaming service prime phonic let me read a little bit apple music is pushing more extensively into classical music today apple announced that it has acquired prime phonic a service that specializes in streaming the classical genre and will incorporate the app's functionality and playlists into apple music the result will be a significantly improved classical music experience apple said in a press release there will also be a standalone apple music classical app coming sometime in 2022 so uh the the first thing i want to uh ask you about here scott when it comes to classical music streaming services just these apps or or whatever that people go to to listen to their western classical music do you feel or do you not feel that it's in any competition with classical radio it's one thing to go to live radio and it's another thing to get it on demand do you feel like there is any feeling of competition there not from yet. your perspective not yet you think uh you know so so you're saying that uh, classical radio just sees itself as you know in its own lane and there's no one to you know knock the car off the rails um i don't i let's broaden it out and just say public broadcasting sure okay because you public broadcasting for a lot of people is the only media that they get we're talking about more yeah. uh rural and and uh you know the back country right um, there's, there's also the issue that they have to get around. Uh, I don't think streaming services are going to take over terrestrial radio for a while mm -hmm. until they find a way around alerting people to emergencies. Yeah. Back when prime phonic was, you know, around cause they've deleted the Twitter and everything they cleaned house. But, uh, back when somebody was on prime phonics, social media, we had a couple of exchanges on Twitter. So mm. they will put out these ads or put out these tweets talking about the uh, prime classical experience or whatever. And I'm sitting here and it's 3 a.m. and I'm, you know, behind the microphone on live radio. And my argument would be, well, music over here is being contextualized, is being delivered. There is a... a, a a uh, not a partner, but a, mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. you know somebody there with you. Yeah, you know just the the company, and you can't write that off. And there and there would be a couple of little tweet exchanges about sound quality and all of that thing. But a companion was the word I was looking for. So you know the other thing I wanted to ask you is you know we see Apple Music take on you know what was probably the streaming services you know for classical definitely up there. As 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 we see that, I wonder if uh, the idea of that companionship is as important to people do you think that is a prime factor when it comes to live terrestrial classical radio as opposed to the streaming man i sure hope so um i wanted to finish the that thought about you know backing out and looking at terrestrial radio sure. and the threat of streaming and all that to bring it back down to classical uh apple probably looked at this as its primary competition in that genre mm -hmm. and if they acquire it Sure, they can say, "Oh, well, you know, we're now we're going to get traffic from all these adjacent right things in Apple's library, right?" right. 
What happens if Apple decides mm, the numbers aren't there? We're just going to choke this off. Yeah, that's that's the risk, isn't it? And I hadn't thought about that. I wanted to read another part of this. Um, it says Prime Phonic launched three years ago, and its team says this deal is about scale and reaching more listeners. Here's a quote: "As a classical only startup." We cannot reach the majority of global classical listeners, especially those that listen to many other music genres as well. We therefore concluded that in order to achieve our mission, we need to partner with a leading streaming service that encompasses all music genres and also shares our love for classical music. So if we're getting that quote, I, I think, honestly, at the end of the day, it was about some money or something. But let's let's take this quote from Prime Phonic. They're saying they feel like they can be more successful among other genres or at least next to them. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you think about that? That idea, especially, again, public broadcast. A lot of these uh, stations, public radio stations are dual format. You know, that that's how I learned public radio. But there are some that are all classical. I wonder if this should be a warning or at least something for those institutions to think about. Um, so my question would be, what are the algorithms? What what do you really gain from another genre or another adjacent sound bringing listeners your way? Is that what you're talking about? I mean, it, it sounds so, like that's what they're talking about. Okay, so um, we know the problem that Spotify has. Mm-hmm. So how are they going to, I, I, my question there would be, how did they address it? Yeah, how, are, how are they going to address that? It's gonna, I, I just think it's interesting because we are seeing some um, community and public radio stations taking down those walls and, and mixing in, uh, you know, a little bit of country or, or even a little bit of pop in with the Western classical. And a part of me just feels like, this is a sign that that is going to need to continue. Sure, but is it going to so is it going to give you that country song with some strings in the background and then steer you away from classical? It depends on in your who, randos. Well, it, I think that question depends on who is in the room and how they're framing the idea of classical uh, it, streaming. Because guess, if I'm there, yeah, you know, so, it's going to be one thing. But if it's elbow patches and right. whoever, you know, it's going to be different. So I guess it remains to be seen. Um, let's give them a little while. You know, they, they said what the app is going to be up in 2022. Mm -hmm. Okay, I would go I'll to look at it then. the the re, The main reason that I continued and continue to pay for Apple Music, uh, you know, I always let Dell do the Spotify account and we share it. But I pay for Apple Music because of the classical. I felt like I could find more and find things more accurately on Apple Music than on Spotify or the other streaming services. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't specifically uh, pay for prime phonic or any other specifically classical service because i also want to search other things you know on the same thing and not want to have to skip the app so maybe right. that's you know maybe that's what they're um that's what they're getting at there so uh yeah shout out and all of that to everyone at uh prime phonic as you say we'll 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 see what happens It'll be interesting. I mean, um, it, it certainly sounds like they're going into it with a lot of confidence. Yeah, yeah. I wonder uh, if we're going to see, I don't know. I, I sent a couple emails today. I'll, I'll leave it at that. If Apple is really getting into, you know, and trying to prioritize classical, as, you know, they allege, again, you say uh, Apple saw Prime Phonic maybe as their primary competition, if any. So, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's that conversation. But if Apple is actually trying to get back 
or I say back, but get into the classical, the the so-called classical. I hope that there is someone there listening to Triloquy and thinking about how awesome it would be to partner with us. I mean, you're not going to, Triloquy is not being sold to Apple. It would be a partnership, but beyond just (laughs) getting us Mm. on, you know, the importance of an institution like Apple approaching and engaging classical music in a way that fits the 21st century in a way that's equitable and in a way that's beyond Baccarini and, and, uh, and all those folks, because it'll be so easy for Apple to fall into that. Yeah. They'll play the Samuel Coleridge Taylor. They're sure to have the Randall Goosby and the uh, Connie Mason families on there. But I think we also need to talk about aesthetic, you know, in the same way that um, genres are being mixed in other places as they're uh, doing on Apple music. I hope that they're including classical when, when you know, as they move forward with classical, I hope they're thinking about that and not considering classical music, this kid that, you know, needs to sit over here and practice your chess and read your books. No, he can go outside with the rest of everybody else and engage it like we do here on this podcast. That's all I'm saying. Now, if I see my sauce over there, if I see, you know, mm. Trilla P or whatever they try to make up. Right, right. <laughs> Could you imagine us getting into a fight with Apple? <laughs> anyway, we will see. We <laughs> shall see, won't we? All right. Well, um, as we uh, get into the second movement here, I wanted to um, shout out Donda. My, my pick in the second movement, as I'll get to, is from Kanye's new album, but um, and it's called Moon. I'm not going to play that right now. I'm going to play one called God Breathed. And this is what I want you to think about, Scott, as you listen to this, because I'm going to ask you. We talk about uh, composers like Philip Glass, Steve Reich, you know, the the new music, the repetitiveness, the, you know, avant-garde electronic music. We can get into Stockhausen and all of that, you know, how we study that in the music theory books. When I heard this track from uh, Kanye, God Breathed, for the first time, I instantly thought of that. I instantly thought of new music and what, you know, these composers uh, have have been able to do. So let's listen to this and uh, I'm going to ask you a little question. The repetition of that vocal from Kanye reminds me of a tune uh, called Different Trains. And I think that's uh, Reich. I I think that's Steve Reich. And I know we've canceled him for for whatever. But my point is, the question I want to ask, I feel like that has every ingredient of something that would be on even, you know, something peripheral, a new music show and uh, an extra eclectic, you know, uh, something like that. I feel like all of the ingredients are there. It's electronic, but we have that uh, repetition of rhythm. We have the repetition of vocals that, you know, are making some sort of artistic point. I don't think this music is far from that arena or, or at least should be treated far from that arena. Do you think I'm stretching by comparing what you just heard to new music as it's defined in, in the in the Western classical circles? That track, yeah, I think that's stretching. Really? I do. Really. Because I feel like let's take out the vocals. That beat, you know, with a violin on top of it, 
would certainly, you know, be included in in that music. Let, let's pretend Kanye wasn't on it, but the rest of the track was there. That single line doing that single bass line doing that single rhythm. I feel like we're 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 getting close to having to have that conversation. Maybe I mean you're saying I'm stretching, let's, and I asked you the question, so that's your let, honest reaction. Let, but I, I don't feel like we're far. Let me ask you why. What what about that makes you think it's not that far off? Because again, what do you hear in there that I'm not hearing? I'm hearing again. We'll 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 we'll, we'll go back. I'm I'm hearing. Let me press play here. So I'm hearing. There's one thing happening right now. Okay. A, re- a repeated melody or a repeated uh, bass, a, a pasacalia or, or whatever, if you will. This is not something that is foreign from classical, right? So just just that much. That's something that I feel like you could hear on a new music track, you know, some avant-garde thing written by insert composer yesterday. I don't feel like that would flag it as something not in those spaces, right? Or Or, or is that in itself outside of, you know, the classical new music as you know it? If are you saying if that was cast with instruments of an orchestra or a chamber group, right? Or even let's, or let's even say one instrument. Let's say we heard that, and we heard a flute, or we heard a violin, or or something on top of that. Just those two things. But you said that you didn't like to hear something being the escort or the the window dressing, right? On, right, but know. right, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, is that not? what new music is as we define it we're only replacing an instrument with a voice Mm -hmm. i get what you're saying i just um i don't i don't hear it yeah i mean that i mean i i I need to i I wish i had prepared a a tune to compare it to let me let me go to and we're we're doing this line i'm live i'm gonna uh, search different trains and i think it's yeah there it goes steve wright so let's listen to just a little bit of this. Now you could easily have some rap on top of this or some vocal or something. My point is, I don't see that sound as different at the end of the day than what we heard in that Kanye track. We're hearing electronics, we're hearing sound effects, we're hearing repeated rhythm. I don't understand what the difference is. That, that's, that's, the, that's the point I'm trying to make or the question I'm asking. How far apart are those two pieces actually? Are you going to put that on the uh, Prime streaming show? Is that what you're talking about? Um, I'm so you're you're trying to you're trying to get me off the path here. I'm I'm asking you what is actually the difference between those two sounds? I don't think those two sounds are are as far apart as we force them to be or make them out to be. Fair. Um, I, I I don't speaking from a radio perspective. A music director has never given me that piece. Sure. Sure. And I know that they look at things in day parts. So right, I don't know. Maybe, but late, my, maybe late at night on a Friday or Saturday. That's what I'm saying. In in my question, I said let's even consider the peripheral things, the specialty shows, the extra eclectic. I've I've heard this on extra eclectic, mm-hmm. you know. But but before I came up here, so we know that Steve Reich, that aesthetic is accepted into these new music spaces. My point is, we need to get the Kanye there as well because it's not actually different if you break down all of the ingredients. 
That's my point. That's that's all I'm saying there. I made that point today on social media and, you know, there was some mixed reaction. And I just wanted to sort of flesh that out a little bit here so people can, you know, understand the point that I'm trying to make and the things I think about when we talk about decolonizing classical music and really breaking down genre. The ingredients are the same at the end of the day to me. And you think God breathes on this should be on a classical station? Yes, absolutely. And that's that. Because it's not different at the end of the day. Even if you want to put it in the new music, in the you know uh, avant-garde eclectic category, it belongs there because all of the same sounds and ingredients and tools are there. I, I want to meet the music director that will make that happen. I want to meet the music directors who, well, anyway, we're here in the second movement mm-hmm. where we are taking the second ending. We uh, take a tune that we've been repeating over and over all week and sort of uh, give our breakdown of it and why we appreciate it. So I'm going to I'm gonna start the second movement uh, this week. So, you know, I've been listening to Kanye's new record. If you want to know all the news and drama and uh, around that, I'll... Uh, you, you can go Google it. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about the music itself. So there are a number of tracks on here that I really, 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 really appreciate. And one of them is one called Moon. Let's listen to a little bit of this here. talk about for the past couple weeks we've been talking about the idea of like getting away and escape with the Nas we talked about um, you know going somewhere where nobody knows me you know somewhere where I'm nobody so that that whole general theme I hear that when I listen to this track because you know of course the lyrics there I want to go to the moon and what when, when you put it into context and think about what Kanye is thinking about, you know, the loss of his mother, the uh, collapse of his marriage, you know, his mental issues, just wanting to go to the moon and wanting to escape. Um, and in the in the midst of all of the other sounds that are on that album, it's just a moment of pause and sort of a, you know, all of the noise, all of the, the news headlines, all of the videos of me in uh Donald Trump's office at the at the White House, all of that. We have that. And we have this moment where you get to just see and hear a Kanye West who is like the rest of us and probably sits around like many of us do oftentimes saying, damn, I wish I could just go somewhere where I don't have to talk, where I don't have to be in the public, where nobody knows me. That's a feeling that uh, many of us have. And I heard that feeling coming out in, in that song. Additionally, to the point I was just making about that other track. The song starts with, you know, vocals and it gets into that electric guitar. Okay, say what you want about the electric guitar in uh, Western classical spaces. Let's turn it into an acoustic guitar. That is not different than some of the things that we allow in. And yes, Kanye comes uh, is, is rapping on top of that a, a little later in the track. But it, again, when I hear this music, I hear music that we have to start to consider and actually ask ourselves the question, why 
is this not allowed in classical spaces? For folks who uh, know a little bit about uh, the latter part of Kanye's journey, he's really gotten into spirituality. His last album, uh, Jesus is King, was very much uh, Christian based and, and driven as this album is. Um, so, you know, we can talk about how, you know, that black spiritual experience and its connection to, you know, all the way back down to the Negro spiritual and what that means for an American view of classical music. All of these things are, are running around in my mind. And like, like I said, I think the day is coming where we're going to have to seriously consider why these aesthetics are, you know, not allowed inside of certain spaces, despite the fact that all of the ingredients are exactly the same. You hit on something. Um, I don't have any of Kanye's albums. I don't know if I've heard any of his songs all the way through. Mm -hmm. Maybe I have when I was listening with you. That's that's not me. That's that's not the music that I gravitate to. And sure. When I do, it's not Kanye. So you talked about knowing all the context and having all the background and everything that he's been through. That's missing for me, and so it didn't resonate. So I, I didn't hear anything there. Now, if you want to talk about um, one of the problems that I think you're going to run into by including that as it is on a station where they play classical music is all of the baggage that goes around just with that word classical music. Mm -hmm. That's first, because if you are advertising yourself as a classical station out there, or people are looking for you because they're looking for an orchestra or a piano or something like that. They're looking for Mozart or whatever. If they go and they hear Kanye, they're going to go, whoops, wrong station. So is this, a, is this an instance where you think Apple taking over, what was it, Prime what? Prime Phonic. Prime Phonic. Is, is that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the first iteration of some sort of sound that you're thinking of? It's, because it's, I don't hear it. I, it's, I, it's definitely something that, I, I will put into those spaces, certainly in radio programming. But I'm going to go back to this article that we were reading uh, where the man was talking about Fela Sawandi's music. He says, again, it's not a profound score, but it's an accomplished and enjoyable one. So like the, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I don't, you know, as you say, I don't gravitate to it, but it's fine. Let me, let me, let me, you know, play a little bit more of this and tell me, about just the general aesthetic of the music, how offensive it is, how it's something that, I don't know, this reminds me of music that you have shared with me, just the general aesthetic of it. We're hearing vocals, we're hearing um, electric guitar. You can't tell me that there aren't pieces that are vocal and electric guitar that you don't like. So when I hear people say you don't gravitate to it, or gravitate to it, or you don't hear anything there, I feel like it's the baggage of who Kanye West is that is attached to that opinion. Maybe, but all I'm saying is, is that I couldn't even, t I wouldn't even been able to tell you that that was Kanye's voice. Sure. Well, no, that 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 was his feature. But we're talking about Kanye as this music creator. You know, there uh, there are two samples on this whole album, and one of them is a Lauryn Hill sample. So the vast majority of this music, this this piece uh, included, you know, is something that came from nothing so you know again that's also what i think about when we talk about new music and 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 accepting this music um as a part of that it's, it's just the, the the soapbox i get on so i yeah. would I, I would invite everyone to just put your bullshit about kanye to the side 
for a second and listen to something new in the same way that you would check out, you know, I'm especially talking to the new music people. You know, I've been in those spaces lately. So the folks who listen to Angelica Negron and all of these, you know, incredible um, composers who are really stretching the limits today, you know, Caroline Shaw, you know, all of that stuff. If you're going to, you know, take some time to check that out, Take some time to see, you know, if there's something that you enjoy here, because at the end of the day, I don't think it's all that different. The The other point, you know, but, but before I end my little thing here, though, I wanted to say is that, you know, Kanye is bringing listeners to the general aesthetic of church, even those of us who are not Christian. I am nobody's Christian. Everybody knows that. But I can really enjoy this music despite the fact that the themes of it and the general idea of it is religious. I feel like that's something that classical is failing to do right now. That aesthetic of a concert hall, that uh, that aesthetic of an opera house is still so foreign to so many people or, or maybe even so unattractive to so many people the music isn't bringing them in in the way that Kanye is bringing all of these people to something religious that's another uh, a parallel that I'm uh, that I'm drawing as I've been you know listening to his music so th- th- those are those are my things on Kanye so go listen to um, Donda this is not an ad I just think it's some really great music what you got what you got this week uh, I feel like I should pass after all that um, <laughs> because you know looking at what Kalina was playing at the BBC proms uh, reading some of these articles that I ran across in the past week uh, I just went right back to Samuel Corwin's Taylor yeah and uh, an overture that I have not I had not heard which was the overture to Hiawatha's wedding feast and uh, I heard a, a Naxos recording of it. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's some old grainy ones that you can get that are probably you know from the the 50s or 40s. And really, or it's a good thing that the music was recorded in the first place because a lot of these things still don't have the professional recording. Well, you know? yeah, and that article that I cited uh, brought up uh, a few composers that are um, you know their music has been found and is being recorded after they're sort of reassembled. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hiawatha's wedding feast. Um, I, I guess there are some British-ish things about it, but as I was listening, there were so many heroic moments. The way that he used the the brass in particular, there were some fanfares that really sort of made the hair on my arms stand up, you know, yeah. when it hit just right. Yeah. But also, um, when Sam was when Samuel was about, he would have had to have been fifteen or twenty years old, somewhere in that range. Silent movies were out. Sure, and. You know, there was a whole reduction of uh, an orchestral score put down into a piano to mm-hmm. go along with it. Yeah. And there were moments in it that, that had me feeling like I was at, like I was in a, in a theater and there was somebody that was playing the music to go along with some action on the screen. He gave you the picture of it. Uh, he, the the scent. He gave me the, yeah, the he scent gave me of it. The scent of being in a, in a silent movie theater. Yeah. It was kind of cool. Um, but... Another thing that struck me about this was that he had no idea how big this music was going to be. Sure. So yeah. he sold it outright for 15 guineas. Oh, my, 15 guineas. I wonder what that is in, well, in I modern figured, day. I oh, figured it out. Did you get it? Okay. Uh, about $4,200. So that's a little bit of money, but but not as much as... No, 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 no. So the, not as much as it's been played and recorded and such. And uh, the reason for that, uh, the, after his death, when he died, the fact that his family received no royalties from all of its success for about 50 years... I can't. 
um, that is what caused the formation of the Performing Rights Society. They had to do a whole group of people, a whole society to get him his coins and he was dead so his family and so i wonder if he has living musicians and composers are benefiting from that today well let's take a listen to uh, a little bit of this hiawatha I appreciate that harp. I think uh, we hear a lot of harp in uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor's music. I think that's really beautiful. And yeah, just again, he had a different sort of struggle as a as an Afro Englishman, but mm-hmm. you know, m- made his way. Uh, maybe a few weeks back, I think I uh, brought up the fact that he made his way to the White House. Something right. Um, right. that I think is important to understand about Samuel Coleridge Taylor, not just as a composer, but as a historical figure. He cared about the diaspora. He was, you know, we talk about um, Garvey and Pan-Africanism, you know, all the time. But Samuel Coleridge Taylor was also thinking along those lines. So, you know, when uh, black Americans weren't being treated right, you know, fighting for civil rights and all that in the early 20th century, he was he was over here. He mm. believed in that. And I think there's really something to note there today. Okay, see, we're getting, we getting into the triloquy, and this is not what <laughs> I was going to talk about in the fourth movement. But what I'm thinking about, we have so many black folks out here, especially some of these black conductors who love sitting, you know, uh, in, in, in these orchestras and, and, and doing these uh, things in these predominantly white institutions, but never turn around and actually do anything for black people. And I think... The further we get along, the more that is being named, especially in the opera world. You know, no shade. I'm, I'm not uh, subtweeting anybody. But my point is Samuel Coleridge Taylor was not one of those people. He was someone who made his way in whatever, you know, with 15 guineas and and, and whatever else. I should say you know, into those spaces. But he cared. He was always looking back and looking ahead and thinking about black people. That's all. You know, I just want to make sure that's stated. I don't know how much 15 guineas was back in the day. Today, it would be about $4,200. I mean, $4,200 so, sounds all right. Right. But I think I think in his time, it was like the equivalent of getting like 50 bucks, 50 really? pounds. So it wasn't even anything. Well, well I, I don't know because yeah. I, I wasn't around sure, then. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, shout out to um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor. I, uh, you know, there was a point where I would forego the music of Samuel Coleridge Taylor for the sake of, you know, other black composers with a, or other women composers with a more contemporary sound. Mm-hmm. You know, again, where we talk about aesthetics and how we need to always, you know, clean the dust out of the corners and take the conversation a little bit further. So, you know, I, I still affirm that we need to shift the aesthetic that we automatically think about when we talk about classical music and even classical music by black composers. And that's really Beautiful music. There's no there's no denying that. It's another entry point into a black composer's work. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, offering 
way uh, many, many, many entry points, um, not only into the music by black composers and other marginalized composers, but some of the uh, so-called traditional repertoire is the Du Bois Orchestra. This week, um, I'm privileged to have Dominique Hoskin, the artistic director of the Du Bois Orchestra, and Joe LaRocca, the executive director of the Du Bois Orchestra, uh, join me in the third movement. Of course, the Du Bois Orchestra named after W.E.B. Du Bois, the, mm-hmm. the great black author um, and thinker who famously affirmed uh, the, the work of Wagner. So uh, what we sort of talk about in this, um, in, in this interview, in this conversation, is the idea of taking a step back and um, matching uh, the more traditional sounds from the diaspora with some of the more traditional canon. I'm always about pushing the needle and let's get new sounds. There are also folks out there with black history and black people as the foundation exploring the same thing, but in some of that more Western European aesthetic. So I thought I would uh, give that conversation um, and and that uh, idea, you know, a bit of a, a platform here on Triloquy. The Du Bois Orchestra is affiliated uh, with uh, Harvard, I believe. And, and, and if it's not Harvard, if it's another Ivy League, we talk about it uh, in the interview. Sorry, I'm, I'm not uh, remembering. But, you know, we talk about how that can sort of feed into the elitism of it all and uh, the ways in which they um, sort of combat that. I'll read the mission of the Du Bois Orchestra is to overcome social exclusion by elevating underrepresented voices in classical music through high quality musical performance, education and community engagement. So, again, they're not doing it the way I like to do it, but they're Mm -hmm. doing it and it's important work. So we're going to hear from both Dominique and Joe uh, to get us into this uh, conversation. Well, first I'll say, you know, we start the conversation out by talking about the other work that they do and why uh, they maintain some dedication to the Western classical uh, repertoire. Dominique, the conductor, is an aerospace engineer and Joe plays Broadway shows. So they have a lot of work outside of talking about, you know, Wagner and uh, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and all these folks. And, you know, they uh, are dedicated to it. So we start by talking um, about that a little bit. But uh, to get us into the conversation, I wanted to play a little bit of a work, another work by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. This is uh, the uh, ending of the fourth movement of his Petite Suite de Concert, a piece that the Du Bois Orchestra has uh, mastered in their performances of it. So here's a little bit of this Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and here is my conversation with Joe LaRocca and Dominique Huskin. <laughs> I make my living in musical theater. I'm actually going to be returning to my normal job on the Jesus Christ Superstar National Tour, um, which is a great job. I play, my primary instruments are flute and piccolo, but I also play pretty much every other woodwind. And I always say, except for bassoon, <laughs> because it that's one of those, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I don't even, you know, it's funny because the bassoon's fingering system is so convoluted. I don't even call it a fingering system. I call it a thumbing system. And so I'm just like, I can't even come close to getting to a professional level on this, but I, I do play, you know, pretty much every other woodwind. I even play some early winds. Um, I did some recent recordings, recording some music by Frederick the Great and Bach and Leclerc on Traverso flute, which is a, you know, nice little project to do. And 
I have a Quants flute coming in the mail. So it's a flute that was designed by Quants. Um, and I want to sort of play more Frederick the Great's music because he's um, and not an underrepresented person, but I think underrepresented in the, uh, in the he's always he's overshadowed by Quants, his court musician. Anyway, so I won't dig too deep into the weeds on that one. But what makes me, what made me sort of stick around with um, the orchestral world is for one, I'm just, I just love orchestral music. You know, it has kind of an emotional depth that's hard to find anywhere else. Um, and um, I'm just in love with it really, it's, it's simply put. And, um, but really deeper than that, I mean, I, I probably would have just put it aside if it weren't for Du Bois as an organization. I was around with the organization since the second year in 2016. I was personnel director just because I was starting to bring my friends from school in. And that was more active recruiting than anyone was able to do. So for a new orchestra that was volunteer. And um, at the time, it was the Du Bois Orchestra at Harvard, which we since stripped that title and become just the Du Bois Orchestra. And um, I just kind of stuck around because I wanted to help out with with you know, I, I, I didn't want, I was becoming a little bit jaded by the classical world, like a lot of people. Um, oftentimes when we talk about social justice within classical music, people think, oh, well, why even bother with classical music? It's so, you know, uh, such an exclusive club for the, you know, the upper crust of society and stuff like that, which I think is, is changing and it shows in the numbers. And so I, I really think that, um, uh, I didn't want to abandon Du Bois and I wanted to stick around and, you know, people, people, a lot of the senior members within the organization uh, coming into COVID um, and when we were like smack in the middle of COVID uh, one year ago, exactly, um, kind of got together and kind of said, hey, do you want to help us run this thing? And I was in a unique position in that my unemployment was fine. And yep. so and, <laughs> and I, I didn't have any other opportunities to work considering my job, you know, we need, I need 2,000 to 3,000 people to be able to congregate in a place in order to work. So I thought, hey, you know, I have the time and the, the will to do it. So let's, let's make this thing happen. Yeah. Dominique, what about you? I mean, you're an aerospace engineer. Why bother with a baton and a podium and orchestral <laughs> music? Yeah. So I'm a PhD candidate at MIT. Hopefully I'll be finishing up pretty soon. I'd say the, the short answer to your question is that there are things that music gives me that my research can't. I mean, I love my research. I've wanted to be an aerospace engineer since I was a little kid. But, and this is not true of all people in my, in my profession, but what I do uh, is pretty much me sitting down at a computer writing code, which is it's really cool. It's really intellectually challenging, but certainly the community aspect is the thing that you know, I just could not give up about music. And then just classical music is one of many very robust languages for you know artistic and emotional expression. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just such a such a privilege to be part of a music making experience with such such high level musicians. So I think that's really for me, it just it just adds something, an aspect to my life that that I just don't get from my research alone. Sure. Des despite those differences, you know, sitting in front of a computer is very different than standing in front of an orchestra. So despite the obvious differences, are there any overlaps? Are there conversations or issues happening in aerospace engineering that you're able to apply to uh, orchestral music or even the Du Bois Orchestra specifically? Well, the first thing that I think of, funny enough, is that uh, sound is very important in, in both uh, professions. Uh, particularly the research I do is on like high speed flow. So uh, where sonic boom, things like that are, okay. are very important. So uh, 
that's one thing. Uh, and then, yeah, in terms of the, the connection between them, I guess it is pretty kind of left brain, right brain sort of thing. But I think there is an artistic aspect of uh, my research and writing code. And when I'm, when I'm faced with an engineering problem and, you know, I'm trying to find a solution, you know, sometimes there are many different ways you could solve it, but trying to find the most optimal or the most optimal or the most elegant way uh, is really quite an artistic endeavor sometimes. So. Hmm, hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Joe, you uh, you already sort of uh, spoke to stripping uh, the name Harvard from the official title of the orchestra. I think about your mission of overcoming social exclusion. There must be lots of conversations there uh, as far as, you know, being Harvard affiliated at all in name or not being pretty exclusive in itself. How do you how do you deal with that reality next to uh, the mission of the Du Bois Orchestra? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I struggle to start talking about just because there's so many places to start. Yeah, <laughs> um, we've had this conversation a lot because two people on our board, on our um, advisory board, who are the founders, um, Kai Poltzoffer, who was a, a PhD um, student at Harvard, um, in uh, composition, and then Karen Cueva, who was in the ed school, um, who now works at Carnegie Hall, um, are constantly in my ear about just everything that goes on in the orchestra. Again, advisory board, right? Yeah. And um, it was it was tough, kind of selling the idea of stripping the Harvard name away. And I wanted to do that because, for one thing, we're going to be I want us to be our own organization, right? And not even have the perception of sort of being financially dependent on Harvard or being a Harvard student group. Because when you have the name Harvard on you, it makes it seem like you're a student group because Harvard has like six orchestras. It's insane. And um, just in really, it was at, at first, it was more of a pragmatic recruiting thing. So I was personnel director. I was doing most of the active recruiting. And when people see at Harvard, they're like, oh, well, this thing doesn't really have legs to be a professional organization. So we really came to that balance um, of saying, you know, by virtue of the fact that we were the Du Bois Orchestra at Harvard and that we were founded by Harvard students and that we're in Cambridge playing at a, in the middle of Harvard Square with the name of Du Bois, people assume the, the Harvard affiliation. Now, one of the things I like about um, having, you know, there's a, a, a positive and a negative side, right? So I'll start with the negative side of, of the Harvard affiliation is one, Harvard is probably the most exclusive place in the world. It's pretty much a Harry Potter fantasy camp for rich people's kids. Sure. Disclaimer, there's a lot of brilliant people there who really earned their way in, but in a school with 30 to 40% legacy admissions, I mean, come on, yeah. you know? Um, so it's, it is like exclusive thing in that way. And a lot of people, um, when they affiliate us with Harvard, we have that kind of negative um, uh, attention drawn to us. However, what I think is that it's important to attack the belly of the beast and in in a lot of ways, the classical world is inexorably tied with the Ivy League, right? Because, you know, a lot of the orchestras, you know, who happen to be the first to or the biggest to have the name of the city attached to them have major donors who are just very, very wealthy people, especially in New England, right? And a lot of those people are tied with the Ivy League in some way, right? So there's that connection. So in order for us to really I think um, fight the battle in you know in the belly of the beast. Then we it's it's good that we're embedded in Harvard because as um, 
um, one of our uh, uh, board members at, uh, um, at or at one of our administrators, Aaron Benavides, said to me, "Like Harvard needs us, um, you know, because he is uh, still at Harvard as a PhD student in, in um, sociology, and uh, he talks about some of the students, like freshman students that he deals with and teaches and tutors and stuff like that, and talks about some of the horrible things that they deal with as people of color, especially, and." Um, you know, because often, you know, he is a, a sort of earpiece for them and a shoulder to cry on being a person of color that's, you know, a, a PhD candidate. Yeah. And so I think about them, you know, when it comes to uh, being sort of embedded in Harvard. And I think that us gaining prestige as sort of being attached to Harvard and sort of Harvard taking more notice of us as time goes by will really be a win um, in sort of our mission. Yeah. I want to speak to... Uh you know, specific uh, techniques, strategies, you know, toward this, again, this larger mission of, uh, you know, getting away from that exclusivity, you know, bringing communities together. But I wonder if uh, either of you could speak to the significance of the name W.E.B. Du Bois when it comes to this ensemble. I mean, there, there are lots of uh, very famous and very significant graduates of Harvard and, and these all of these Ivy League schools. Why uh, Du Bois? Why was his name chosen? Well, I think he was one of the first, if not the first, if I'm not mistaken. And I think uh, even more importantly, he was a lover of classical music. Okay. So I, I think he was great friends with uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Um, he happened to love the music of Wagner, I believe, as well. So I think he's a he's a great icon to hold up as a as a as a patron of the arts, but that's also very obviously interrelated with our mission. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Joe, when when it comes to uh, you know the the cross uh, pollination that we saw with Du Bois and all of these other folks, I wonder if you know we're seeing any of that now. Is the spirit of cross arts collaboration um, alive in this project with this orchestra? Sure, I think that's one of those things that will that we're kind of gearing toward for the future in terms of uh, yeah cross collaboration and art forms. Um, it's interesting because one of the things that's one of the things we were talking about doing as we were coming out of COVID because we spent our time as basically like a volunteer, essentially community style orchestra, right? Like we don't have a 501c3. We're all just kind of, you know, getting just enough donations to be able to rent the music and, you know, compensate some, uh, you know, like a harpist or something like that. If sure. we need them, if we're getting like overly ambitious um, or to have cartage for percussionists and stuff like that. So really, uh, you know, while we had a lot of these ideas, the resources kind of weren't there. Now, coming out of COVID, we are starting to be able to um, gather enough resources to be able to do things like cross collaboration and art forms and in different kinds of musical forms. And a million ideas are there and everybody's just kind of sparking with enthusiasm on this. But one of the things I had to do as executive director is step in and say, OK, let's do what we're doing first <laughs> and do it successfully for a year and then let's start to talk about these things um and, but yeah i mean in terms of of that i mean i've been a big proponent of that in my own recitals I've, I've always tried to you know get visual artists uh to um you know make some kind of uh you know not just uh, uh images on a projector screen but like putting different images on different surfaces and in, in, sure. in the halls that i was performing in and 
um, you know, original visual art with like Bach, but also with like Miguel de Aguila and things like that and programming those things together. And so I, I come in with the sort of artistic spirit um, of that. And so a lot of those ideas are there, but it's just going to come with resources. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the W word was said a couple minutes ago, Wagner. So I want to mm -hmm. go there. I, I actually uh, featured uh, Paul Festa uh, several weeks back, um, you know, and, and he talks a lot about appreciating, re-appreciating Wagner and really seeing how significant he was to world culture just uh, beyond, you know, opera, be, beyond the uh, orchestral stages. Um, in that research, you know, he included Du Bois's appreciation for Wagner. And that was something that I was actually pretty surprised to see. I, I had never heard that story. With that appreciation um, of Wagner considered, is that justification enough? What are the conversations uh, surrounding platforming the music of Wagner specifically, as opposed to, you know, the many other black composers who, who aren't being given that moment when Wagner is? Is that a has that been a conversation? Have have people pushed or challenged you, you know, when it comes to that specifically? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Uh, one of the nice things about this orchestra is, you know, we can do both, right? So if we if we so choose. Um, kind of my official position is that uh, while I certainly do not want to uh, over-represent music of Wagner, certainly, uh, and we happen to not have any Wagner coming up on this year's concert cycle, I Bravo. wouldn't say that we would, <laughs> we would never perform his works, um, especially considering that W.E.B. Du Bois was indeed uh, a patron of his, mm -hmm. um, but I think the key is, you know, you, if you're going to if you're going to perform Wagner, it's important to to think critically about it and to make sure that you know you're you're honest about you know what his views were and what are you know the positive and the negative impacts that he had on the world. So I think yes, yeah, it's, it's to present both sides proportionally, right? To not be uh, to not give a one sided, overly charitable view of Wagner. Yeah. Even beyond Wagner, just the, you know, the more so-called traditional repertoire. Joe, why, why do we why do we need it at all? What's the significance of, you know, platforming some of the works that folks know, not only the Wagner, but the but but the Beethoven and, and, and so many others? Well, I think this is what you're touching on is kind of highlighting what makes the Du Bois Orchestra's mission kind of um, special in this time where a lot of people are starting to program, especially black composers and women composers in this time, um, especially in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that. Um, and, all, you know, and a lot of great social justice initiatives going on within the greater society um, and orchestras are responding to that. Now, the important thing to us is really canonizing works by underrepresented composers. And the way we believe to do that is one, not just limiting black composers to February, um, not just limiting underrepresented composers to special pops concerts, yeah. you know, alongside Harry Potter or something like that. Um, you know, not putting it off to the assistant conductor. What we're doing is taking these works and programming them right alongside the canon, right? So we're going to do uh, Florence Price programmed right next to Haydn. Um, we've done Beethoven next to Samuel Coleridge Taylor. You know, these to us, this is really the important thing is to have it in our core programming, our regular programming and to do it without. And hopefully at one point it won't be a big deal. 
people look back at it and say like, oh, this is what people have been doing forever. That's that's kind of our mission, right? And so then, you know, as time goes forward, we might have to stretch our mission to say, oh, okay, well, now we're going to start doing these special cross-art collaborations, like things that symphonies really need to do to really keep up with the times and sort of appeal to a younger audience in a way that isn't just saying, like, you better appreciate us because, you know, this is what culture is. And if you don't like it, you're not educated enough or not cultured enough, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Are there challenges in getting the music itself that... Uh, folks don't see or don't typically think about. I, I feel like, you know, there's a website uh, uh, that you can go to for almost anything from, you know, 18th, 19th century, just print out all the parts. We know <laughs> that you can't do that for, you know, folks like Florence Price. You know, what, what are the challenges in actually uh, platforming the the music, the, the, uh, the, the specifics when it comes to rentals or, or yeah. parts or all, all that sort of thing? That's I'll let you take this one, Dom. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very good question. So... Uh, there's this great website called IMSLP that you can get anything in the public domain on, or most most things, yeah. uh, for for free, and it's you know it's it's basically open source. Um, but the problem is in the U.S., music copyright law is rather long. It's uh, was it's death of the composer plus seventy years, I think. Seventy, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a very very long time, and so I honestly think half the reason why a lot of this music, which is great great music is so underperformed is because it is so hard to get. Usually one rental company has basically the exclusive rights to all of a of a given composer's estate and you have to go through them uh, to get the music. And one of the, the, the most challenging thing for me, in addition to the price and you know having to the, the delay time and actually getting the music is a lot of the rental companies won't they won't actually sell you the score. And as the conductor, you know, we put a lot of work into our score study, marking the scores and you know, yeah. making sure everything is just right for the rehearsals and the performance. And so, definitely not being able to, to keep that work is, is is something that's that's really disappointing. Uh, and it also just it presents an additional challenge that I'm very much looking forward to. I think it's going to help me grow as a conductor, and I think it's going to help all of our all of our players grow as musicians. But it's definitely not easy. So how does how does that manifest when it comes to uh, preparation? I'm sure you own, you know, Beethoven scores and have your own particular markings and and that sort of thing. How do you how do you overcome the challenge uh, as far as preparation when it comes to not being able to own the scores to some of this underrepresented music? Yeah, it's it's really tricky. And it's something that I am just now kind of uh, in the beginning stages of learning how to deal with. But I think the the key for me would be just getting myself to the point where I can go through a score in a week and be, you know, ready for the first rehearsal. And that's a, that's a very daunting task as a young conductor. But, but again, I think it, so I think it's just really the speed of preparation and then also being able to, to have a complete musical vision, just looking at my head or looking inward, you know, by reading the score, as opposed to being able to listen to, to 15 different recordings of the piece. So I think, Really, those two things, the speed of preparation and not having as many reference recordings to, to go back to is what makes it especially challenging. Yeah. Joe, I, I wonder how you have seen uh, this specific you know, challenge of actually getting the music manifest uh, 
within the body of musicians and in, in, in the rehearsal process? I mean, does it it, it it is more time spent rehearsing, you know, again, a, a Florence Price piece as opposed to Beethoven seven that mo most of us know? How does how, how does how does that manifest? You know, it's really interesting because I think one of our challenges in the very beginning was the fact that um, the fact that our conductors knew more about the canonical works meant that we spent more time on them because they could hear it better. They knew what they wanted in yeah. their head more than with something they'd never heard before um, or something that there's only a couple recordings of there or, or none out there. Um, and so that became a challenge. And luckily, there were a lot of mouthpieces within the orchestra who were very much um, able to come out and say, hey, I noticed that we're only spending 15 minutes on this piece where we spent 45 minutes on Beethoven or something like that. And that was something that was actually, um, you know, to our first conductor's credit, um, they they were able to make those shifts, right? And, and know that there was that bias within themselves and make that change. Um, but I really, it's interesting though, because I think that um, oftentimes musicians really take to a lot of underrepresented composers, especially American underrepresented mm -hmm. composers, a lot easier than um, even works that they know really well because they get very excited about it, you know, and it, and it, and it speaks more to like, you know, you can hear things that are very uh, American, for example, in Florence Price's music, you know, we played like Mississippi River Suite and people took to it like a duck in water. And we really didn't have to spend that much time on it, except on some technical things. But even then, the technical things people were able to overcome really well, more than uh, something that they felt like was um, a little more tedious, like a, a, a Schumann or something like that. Sure, sure. What does the orchestra look like? I mean, what, what I wonder if either of you can speak to, you know, any intentionality behind making sure uh, the orchestra looks as diverse as you know you're you're wanting it to sound programmatically. So my thoughts yeah. on that are: I think the best way to increase representation, really in any group, but in a, in an orchestra especially, is to make the environment such that the people that you want to join would be attracted to the group. And so uh, we're actually right in the in the midst of our audition process, and I think I've certainly been very pleased with the with the diversity amongst the musicians that are that are that are trying out for this group and you know shifting to a, a paid model certainly helps with that it gets more people attracted and so i think yeah the, the the bigger your your pool of recruiting is the more active recruiting you do and the better experience you have the easier it is to to attract a more diverse crowd yeah yeah so who so who are you you talk about you know the folks who you want to uh be in the group attracting those people who who are those musicians are you are you know are is it okay to have student musicians are you specifically uh targeting freelancers who 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 yeah. is the target du bois orchestra member yeah that's yeah right. so I, I, oh go ahead joe no you could go I, i'll I'm, i just want to speak to that because um i as i was personnel director before executive director and i'm still pretty much personnel director right now in terms of doing the recruiting. Um, and really, I mean, we've gotten some people um, who, for example, there was, um, oh God, I don't wanna say their name because they're not like, they've already auditioned, but they're not in the orchestra yet because we have other people to audition. But it was a person who was doing a series about um, wanting to canonize black composers and just talking about black composers. And so it was just a person I reached out to and actively recruited and said, hey, would you, 
would you like to audition for us, right? So that's an example of the, the sort of kind of person because that's clearly somebody who's going to want to be involved in the mission, right? Um, while we've kind of shied away from having like interview questions within the or within the process, um, certainly that kind of active recruiting is, is one way of doing that. And that's the kind of uh, sort of person we've been reaching out to. But one strategy, like concrete strategy we implemented in terms of having a more passive organic sort of um, sort of messaging to say like, hey, people who are, you know, uh, to sort of increase uh, diversity and people interested in the mission and things like that was by our concert in June and sort of having, um, again, well, and that one wasn't audition. That was like taking sort of half of members that we already had and half members that are gonna be brand new and just actively recruiting and saying like, do you wanna play this one concert? By the way, we're gonna be re-auditioning everybody because we have a new director and everything like that. But, you know, we played uh, a Joseph Bologna piece, which was, you know, symbolic in the fact that for one the joseph bologna is a lot easier to get <laughs> than a lot of you know black composers just because it's so old and in the yeah. public domain and um also we played it very first we wanted it to be the very first thing that we played coming out of covid and it was one of the things we took the most seriously it was his two symphonies right and then we programmed that alongside aaron copeland and um holst and um what was the third one for the fourth one song yeah bartok right and um that we and you know, we also wanted it to be a good experience for people just because the best recruiting is word of mouth from people who are already there. Right. And so we, you know, just tried to, you know, make it a, a positive artistic environment and also saying within our um, recruiting in our audition page, like, you know, not, you know, not just that all are encouraged to apply or that people, uh, people, you know, BIPOC people and, uh, you know, um, LGBTQ are encouraged to apply. It, it was more of uh, coming up with a statement and saying like, we, you know, acknowledge that there is, um, you know, marginalization of all these kinds of groups and therefore all are encouraged to apply. That, you know, and that I'm kind of butchering the wording a little bit, but I think that also kind of gave people a sense of like, oh, that's not just the copy and paste statement that all these organizations use to try to seem, you know, uh, uh, diverse and or like not racist or sexist yeah, or homophobic. Yeah. Right. So I think that also helps. So yeah, that's and, the short answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and Dominica, I asked that question, you know, again, you know, who you want in the orchestra or, or recruiting techniques while thinking about that mission, overcoming social exclusion. I mean, what defines, uh, an, an orchestra is, you know, is exclusive in itself in, in many ways. I mean, you can't have 20 flutes on stage. You have to exclude someone. So yeah, your, your, your thoughts on that, you know, just recruiting and, and, um, uh, and putting intention behind diversity. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to, uh, to mention before, you asked the question about what to kind of, what does the orchestra look like in terms of like where, you know, where, where are people from and things like that. So I'd say that like most of our musicians fall into two groups. So uh, we have a lot of kind of young conservatory grads or even conservatory students that are kind of young gigging musicians and they are, they're really trying to make their instrument their livelihood. But then there are folks like me that are just kind of really good amateurs, you know, that, that have day jobs. And I think having pretty equal representation in both camps makes this a, a, a fairly unique orchestra. And I think that's one thing, um, certainly for me personally, uh, one way I describe it is that I was personally privileged enough to be exposed to classical music, but not privileged enough to be 
kind of groomed to be a classical musician. So having an orchestra that's that's open and welcoming to, to folks that aren't uh, using their instrument as their livelihood, I think really helps broaden the just the range of people that we can that we can get uh, to, to to play in our orchestra. Yeah. And another thing we do is we're not we we allow people to upload their resume if they would like, but we don't we don't absolutely require it. And we don't, you know, if they upload it, we'll take a look at it. But again, we're not we're certainly not resting uh, our decisions based solely on their credentials. It's mostly this is one of the reasons why we were so adamant about actually doing uh, in-person auditions, even though very few orchestras are really going through you know, that trouble right out of post. Yeah. Because we really want a fair process to be able to evaluate folks. And yeah, these are some really hard decisions getting to your second questions. There are definitely going to be some hard decisions because certain instruments, particularly the wind instruments, we've got lots of really talented, qualified musicians that really, really, really want to play. Um, so, you know, to, to tie this in with your another, with another one of your questions, I think this is one of the reasons why the canon is important because a lot of those works do have very tall scores with lots of instruments and sure. allow us to include more people. But yeah, there are definitely going to be some hard decisions and we'll have to, again, think really deeply about how we want to divide these, these limited number of parts. But again, our, our goal is to really make this experience something that lots of different people, uh, find attractive and then you know be as fair and equitable and equitable as possible about choosing who ultimately plays in our orchestra yeah yeah you know the the orchestral world is still uh, mourning the loss of michael morgan and something that i'm thinking about uh, when i think about his legacy especially uh, over on the west coast conducting orchestras was you know a purpose of an orchestra um going beyond just the music but making the community a better place impacting the community um i did see that uh the du bois orchestra has a relationship with uh, the boston juvenile justice system and you know just reaching beyond the the orchestral stage how how is the du bois uh orchestra you know uh really having that positive impact beyond you know just audiences getting to hear some some beautiful music yeah, so I can speak to that, certainly. Um, that that project was a really interesting project, and I wish we could have expanded it more, but that was one of those things that there was just a huge personnel shift, you know, at that time. Um, um, pretty much completely a different administration than what we have now, so we kind of lost contact with that a little bit, and then, of course, COVID. But one of the things that we're trying to do is emphasize not only sort of um, educational initiatives um, in terms of like group lessons and stuff like that, but real concrete individual uh, mentorship. Um, because in our uh, one of our board members, Ian Saunders, I've had many, many, many conversations with him about this. And that's kind of the con conclusion we came to that that's the best course of action in terms of helping uh, people from marginalized communities um, really succeed in this world. Now it's interesting because we've also had the conversation about you know, uh, sort of these kind of educational initiatives often focus on solely music, right? And sort of um, trying to, you know, uh, teach kids how to, you know, be uh, excellent musicians. Um, and we talked about sort of the motivation behind that, right? And sometimes the motivation is like, oh, well, we want to create the next crop of soloists and excellent symphony musicians, which as we know is, is, you know, I mean, probably 99% of people just don't have a career as performers. That's just the reality. 
And that's, right. you know, that's just how it is nowadays. And that's what we have to work with. And so one of the things that Dominique and I had talked about is this idea, or, you know, multiple people in the organizations, but namely Dominique, is um, sort of having this individual mentorship with the motivation of giving people from these marginalized communities um, the same opportunities, or at least as close to similar opportunities as people, uh, you know, from wealthy communities have in terms of being able to compete to get into these better schools and have better careers and stuff like that, um, for whatever you want to call, you know, for what, uh, what, what that sure. is. Um, so music and also just music as a way of just bettering humanity, right. If we're really going to get down to it on a philosophical level. So, um, so what we're planning to do is sort of find an organization to latch onto, since we don't really have the money right now to um, make these kinds of things happen and um, provide our people, our musicians um, to uh, kind of volunteer um, and then, you know, later on find funding to, uh, you know, make these uh, sort of individual mentorship programs happen, whether it be like through a bunch of lessons and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I appreciate the clarification of uh, the word better. Right. Because again, yeah. when, we talk, <laughs> when we're talking about, uh, you know, overcoming ex exclusive sort of uh, paradigms, I think that's an important thing to do. I have uh, one more question that I'll throw out. But before I do that, how can uh, people learn more about the Du Bois Orchestra and how can they support the Du Bois Orchestra? Yeah. So you can come to our website, uh, DuBoisOrchestra.org. Um, where we actually have our GoFundMe on the front page, which we just started a couple weeks ago. Um, so you can support us through there. Um, with that money, you know, we just started being able to pay musicians through a grant um, from um, Cambridge Arts um, Foundation. And um, we're also uh, getting having, you know, starting to really dig into some um, some individual donors. So we've been able to pay um, small honorarium to our musicians, but this is coming from being a volunteer orchestra. So, you know, so even a donation of, you know, $80 would take care of one musician for an entire cycle. Um, so that GoFundMe is on there. And uh, the, the interesting thing though we've been finding is that, you know, there are some, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a little story about uh, our GoFundMe. So we put it up and we've had some donations and it's been doing pretty well just from audience members and stuff like that. But from people who've never heard about it, we've had some interesting feedback. Um, I actually had a message from somebody because apparently you can message uh, somebody who is um, mm -hmm. running a GoFundMe. And it said, I would have donated if not for this woke BS. So tiresome is what they said. And so I thought that was very interesting because not only, you know, did he take the time to read through it and not donate, but he also took the time to message me about it. <laughs> and so I thought, this is actually evidence that what we're doing is really important. Right. And so, you know, um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, it makes me even more motivated, you know, cause if you, if you don't have haters, you're not doing something right. So that's right. So that's how you can, yeah. that's how you can do it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, we, we couldn't honor uh, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, without reading some of his prose. So I did find a quote that I wanted to bring in. He said, if the slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved again towards slavery. He's, of course, referring to Reconstruction era America and, and how things sort of got uh, derailed. But I think about that when it comes to uh, orchestral music, orchestral spaces, highlighting marginalized composers. Um, you know, uh, and, and I'll start with you, Dominique, what's protecting uh, orchestral spaces, so-called classical spaces, from returning to, you know, centering the, the Beethoven and the, and the Wagner and all those folks, instead of doing the extra legwork of renting these scores from these uh, more diverse composers and really making that the norm moving forward? Yeah, that's a very good, it's a very good point. Um, so I think for us, one of the reasons uh, why I was very attracted to uh, to this position when it was offered to me was the fact that this orchestra has really been ahead of the curve on that, uh, since it was founded, what, in 2015, 2016? So before, you know, this type of, uh, I guess, diversity initiative really, really took root, uh, this this orchestra has been you know, very consistent in its in its programming and its message, and that's something that makes me feel a lot more comfortable being a part of the team than I would have if this orchestra had started in say 2019. So uh, I think, unfortunately, you're probably going to see a lot of other groups though that you know have recently uh, you know we're not gonna we won't name names, but we've even had some uh, some issues of plagiarism of some of our mission, and it's you know oh, we, wow. we think we think very deeply about what we say and how it's worded so that it can be the most uh, inclusive, so we can say what we want to say in the most inclusive and acceptable way possible. It's usually not, it usually doesn't look like the same, you know, email that everybody who works at a corporation gets. And so it's pretty obvious when, uh, when somebody tries to copy us. And so we do see things like that where people are just trying to win some some brownie points, uh, you know, to, to to boost whatever it is their their real purpose is. But you know, for our for our orchestra, underrepresented composers and programming them programming them alongside canon is really at the core of our mission. So for us, that's not going anywhere. So so to that, Joe, what's the big picture for the Du Bois Orchestra twenty years down the line? What do you hope to see in the general ecosystem that the Du Bois Orchestra has uh, helped put in motion? You know, 20 years from now, geez, I'm, I'm trying to think about one year from now, Garrett. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah um, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, I, I I really hope to see 20 years from now, at least where we are, um, to have what our mission is now sort of not be special. You know, that it's really common practice. Um, because, you know, these composers are undoubtedly excellent. I mean, I think of Florence Price as an example. Um, I often call her our Beethoven, you know, because that's the amount we're going to repeat her works because it ju it's just excellent. <laughs> there's, there's no other way around it. Um, we're not just checking off a box or two boxes by programming Florence Price, considering she's black and a woman. Like it, that's not our motivation. Our motivation is to play it, you know, obviously because she's underrepresented, but because it's excellent music, right? And so I really hope that people continue on this path of programming those works, perform, programming them alongside the canon, and that we actually have to shift our thinking in order to stay um, more relevant. Um, and uh, But also just sort of be hopefully held up as, as one of the pioneers of 
of this movement. Um, and also that more uh, people um, my age or around there are feel good about going to see classical music. Um, and I think that extends beyond just, you know, programming under representing composers and doing uh, pops concerts and things like that. There has to be some real fundamental change. Um, again, in terms of what we talked about with cross arts collaborations and things like that, just making the symphonic experience a more interesting one to people who've grown up with excellent art, like bombarded with amazing art and sometimes not amazing art, but just a lot of art like TV and music and more than any other time in history and so in order to keep the attention of people who've grown up like that you know more things need to happen and i think there's a good way of balancing entertainment which is can sometimes be a dirty word in the in the world of classical yeah. music of balancing entertainment and art um that can really amount in uh just sustainability of these organizations bit of Florence Price's single movement piano concerto to get us out of that conversation there, a piece of music that we've platformed here before, but a piece of music that the Du Bois Orchestra has had, had a lot of experience uh, performing. So a uh, shout out to uh, the Du Bois Orchestra. I'll have more information about them and how you can contribute to what they're doing in the description of this. Quickly, Scott, before, before we get into uh, the, the final movement, I wanted to ask you again, as we think about orchestras who are uh, participating in anti-racism and, and transforming the field through the more traditional repertoire. As, as we think about that, I wonder how your ideas or your relationship with some of that traditional aesthetic has changed or hasn't changed over these past few years as the conversation of DEI and Western classical music has been elevated. I, you know, we when we were talking about this in pre-production, I kept going back to like, well, you know, I've never really been all that big on Haydn and Mozart and all that thing in the, in the first place. I like the Romantics and newer and living composers. But it's still um, music that you have had to advocate for. That's right. Despite that, you know. That's right. Um, I really feel like I'm still on the tip of an iceberg, though, of you know, of discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and even though I can talk to people a lot about Florence Price or about Nathaniel Dett or George Walker, you know, any of these composers that uh, we've been highlighting here in particular the last few weeks. Um, I, I, I feel like there's still more and more room for that. Is yeah. that, am I, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, because I, I guess what more what I'm getting to is Five years ago, not five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, listening to a Mozart symphony followed by a Vivaldi concerto, followed by a Haydn symphony, followed by a Beethoven overture may not have sounded out of place to me. Maybe, you know, back when I was in school or whatever. Now that sounds wrong to, to have that yeah. aesthetic for, for so long, you know, and, and that's something that this work has changed in me. My ear has been changed by this work. I see what you're getting at now. Yeah. Um, but I, that comes with listening and discovery, though. 
Yeah. So I'm sure that there's plenty of people out there that you read off those names and you go, oh, that sounds like a classical station or, yeah. or a classical concert. Mm-hmm. Okay. And through the work on this podcast over the last three years, my eyes have been open to different things that would work well. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. these different composers. And like I said, I still stand by the idea that it's, it's, just the tip of an iceberg that I feel like I have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into this fourth movement. Uh, I'm going to stick with uh, the Florence Price single movement concerto because toward the end here, there, there are a lot of trills, both orchestrally and in the solo. So let's take a listen. that one play all the way to the end because i love it so much shout out to the new black repertory ensemble all sorts of trills yeah, everybody there at the end yeah i loved it all right uh just some uh some quick trillo triloquy some quick <laughs> trills here for this fourth movement um anna natrepko what are you doing look did something else happen? You cannot paint any part of your face black. Oh, right, so the, uh, she came. This is an opera, I believe, an opera singer who mm-hmm. came out with a, a a new recording. And in on the uh, album art, uh, down her lips down, sort of like in a diagonal, is painted black. Hands too. Let's. And and you you know you put me on to the fact that she has gotten in trouble for this in the past mm-hmm. i'm reading from um the new york Times. no this is the observer uh from february 2020 right before everything happened i'll post it in the link but i mean in the description but she's uh this article you know brings up her role as aida and uh if you know engaging in the skin darkening the blackface was really necessary so back then uh, she responded by saying blackface and black body for ethiopian princess for verity's great opera yes it is necessary uh, uh, th- 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 this is bad and, and we're seeing it repeated so the lesson has not been learned so you know somebody tell her somebody tell anna trepko and tell everybody else over there in opera you cannot paint your face any part of your face black and you cannot darken your skin with makeup to have the look of someone who is black or someone who is of color just stop just full stop not for a halloween costume not for your opera production not for anything i've been hanging on to that one for a couple weeks i just needed to make sure that i stated that okay better (laughs) um final thing i wanted to bring in and this is something that i know doesn't impact or affect a lot of people but enough folks in the arts that I feel like it's a conversation that we need to have more and more. So as I approach the one year anniversary of working independently, I've been learning a lot about grant processes specifically. And, you know, you you said off mic that you've never um, applied for a grant, you know, so I, I think that's an example, uh, you know, just just an antidote there about how, um, I don't know, fringe, for lack of a better word, this issue uh, can be for people. But this is the, this is the way I think about it. And this is how I've sort of talked my way into boiling down my frustration right now, specifically when it comes to nonprofit organizations and grant funding. All right, let's go to the for profit side 
for a second. I saw a statistic uh, the other day. We were watching a special on uh, Vice, I think Vice News, and it said that Jeff Bezos could give every one of his employees a $100,000 bonus and still be richer than he was when the pandemic began. Okay. But would he have gone into space? Uh, maybe not. See, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> see, that's part of the problem. Um, but we it, it's easy to see how that's ridiculous, how there is so much money hoarding out here and so much more good that can be done, but it, it's just not happening. You know, I, it's, and let me make sure I'm not making any assumptions. The idea of Jeff Bezos giving all of his employees a $100,000 bonus and still being, you know, as rich as he is, is not a bad idea, right? Or, or, or an idea that people would, that too many people would uh, poo-poo on or, mm. or, or disagree with, right? Okay. Right. So I don't work in the nonprofit sector. I find myself in the, on the nonprofit side of things more when it comes to, um, specifically when it comes to applying for grants for Triloquy and um, the other work uh, that I do uh, throughout the week. What I see is um, nonprofit organizations, philanthropic organizations, foundations of, of giving that are doing something similar. They could give so much more, but are worried about the maintenance of their endowments. The number that a lot of people throw around is 5%. You mm-hmm. know, 5% uh, giving means that your endowment can grow from year to year and your organization exists in perpetuity. You know, earlier in this opus, you know, Scott, I was asking you if I was stretching by comparing um, Kanye West to some of the other minimalist music that's out there, Steve Reich and all that stuff. Okay. Am I stretching by comparing these two concepts for profit people taking care of themselves despite what they could do versus nonprofit organizations holding on to that endowment and even setting up a way for it to grow over the years and not giving at the rate that they could? Is that a stretch compared comparing those two things? I see what you're coming. I, I see the comparison that you're making, uh, the problem is, is that having so little knowledge of it, I would just open my mouth and insert my foot. And I feel I mean, like I don't know what you want me to no, say. No, no. Because, I was, well, I was well. I, again, I was asking you. You know, I, I explained. You know, the the perspective that I'm not, I had. Yeah, I get that. I get I get what you're saying here. Uh, I feel like your your you know reasoning for not jumping in is the primary weapon that these nonprofit organizations have. They are used to being seen by folks who don't actually have to deal with them as these all good benevolent organizations when they're hoarding money, hoarding resources in the same in the same way in similar ways as the nonprofit. I mean sorry, the pro, the for-profit side of it does. I think if we started to really compare the Jeff Bezoses with the insert foundation here, the conversation of the rate to which these folks need to be giving would open up. But again, most people, the majority of people, even the majority of people who work in classical music don't actually have to fill out these grant applications and don't actually have to uh, deal with the challenges and the uh, and the complications of maintaining a 501c3, the board, the paperwork, the mm-hmm. audits you have to do. So, yeah. you know, as I, again, I don't know if I mentioned, but as, as I approach uh, my one year anniversary of doing this stuff, independently. It's just one of those conversations that has been circling, circling, circling around in my mind based on the things that I have to do to um, keep myself afloat and to keep the work afloat, you know, and, and I, and I think there's a, 
you know, folks are not really also in this conversation centering the fact that those of us who walk this path, we're not out here trying to, you know, most of us anyway, we're not out here trying to install a pool or or have an addition done to our home or whatever. We're, we're around here doing the best we can with what we got. So it's not like we're trying to hoard the money. We're trying to actually uh, uh, incite systems change. I certainly am in the work that I do um, here and away from this podcast. So um, I hope that as I continue to move forward, I can figure out a way to really uh, make this conversation clearer and more important to the majority of the people that it does not impact directly because it's definitely a system that is going to have to be challenged and that a few of us are really um, having to fight in a real way but you know a challenge nonetheless as you say all the time just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening or doesn't mean it's a problem mm-hmm. so you know as I move forward um, I, 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 I want to make sure that folks are, are thinking about um, you know that there a lot of us out here just trying to get a few shekels from these foundations who have tens of millions of dollars in in their endowment piggy banks if they gave more even if they approached giving in a way that didn't um that didn't allow for perpetuity so much so much could be done you know yes maybe jeff bezos giving a hundred thousand dollars to all all of his employees means he can't play with his toy rocket ship and go into space but that still does not mean it shouldn't be done i think there's similar conversations that we need to begin to have um with nonprofit organizations in the coming weeks i need to have a a, a nonprofit or a foundation person somebody in charge of uh, of giving on this uh on this show so we can open up that conversation a little bit. Um, I'd be interested to hear. And I, and I guess I'm really thinking about it because I got a grant application that's due next week. So (laughs) I'll jump through the hoops for now, but um, yeah, thank you for listening and uh, I'll see y'all next week. (laughs) 